Today we begin the fourth term of communion, moving right along. And so the fourth term of communion out of the six reads this way that public social covenanting is an ordinance of God, obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament that the National Covenant and the Solemn League are an exemplification of this divine institution and that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person and in consistency with this that the renovation of these covenants at Arkansas 1712 was agreeable to the word of God. We have much to talk about in the area of covenanting and we certainly will not reach our goal in one evening and so <clears throat> this will be a multi-lesson uh, term of communion and uh, this evening what I hope to accomplish is to give a foundation uh, to covenanting before we begin to look at the covenants, uh, particularly the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant with, in any detail, uh, we're going to lay a foundation and uh, look at uh, the nature of covenanting, the obligation, and the perpetual obligation. Before we get into the duty of social covenanting, let's uh, first define what covenanting is. And I'm uh, going to be using a couple books here, one entitled The Reformed Presbyterian Catechism by William L. Roberts, as well as Another book entitled Distinctive Principles of the Reformed Presbyterian Church by David Scott. <clears throat> and in regard to what is a covenant, this is a, uh, an answer given to that particular question. A covenant is a mutual agreement or mutual engagement between two parties in which certain performances are stipulated on the one hand and certain promises on the other. And so at least two parties enter into a covenant. One promises that, that he will be faithful to the terms of that covenant and the other that there will be a blessing that is given in response to obedience to that covenant. It might be asked, for example, where is or wherein lies the difference between a covenant, um, a vow, and an oath? And I think this is helpful just to realize this, the difference between these three items. 
certainly many similarities, but these three differences. In a covenant, there is engagement by two parties in which, again, in a, um, in a covenant, uh, there is blessing promised uh, to the one who covenants uh, upon his performance of, the, of the, uh, being faithful to the terms of that covenant. There's a, there's a blessing and a reward that is promised. In a vow, there is engagement by one party only. In other words, in a vow, when we take a vow to God, we engage ourselves in that particular responsibility. And uh, we simply make a solemn promise to God uh, to perform a particular duty, invoking his name in his presence. And in an oath, uh, there is no engagement uh, at all. One simply invokes the name of God in performing a, a particular duty. Uh, no promise made uh, in particular to God. An oath is made with a fellow man. A vow is made unto God. And so these are uh, distinctions between covenant, between vow, and oath. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, with regard to covenanting, there uh, is in the scripture a personal covenanting and social covenanting. A person himself can enter into a covenant with God uh, or he can engage in a covenant with with other uh, individuals, whether in a religious society or whether in an entire nation. And so covenanting uh, can be either personal in nature or it can be social as well. <clears throat> and we're going to be considering primarily this evening what social covenanting is. And so uh, in answer to that question, what is public social covenanting? Again, this is the response that is given it is a solemn religious transaction in which men with joint concurrence avouch the Lord to be their God and engage in all the relations of life to serve him by obedience to his law in the performance of all civil and religious duties in the confidence of his favor and blessing in the fulfillment to them of all his gracious promises. And so the, the main uh, items there with regard to social covenanting, again, in summary, it is that it is a solemn religious transaction with others as they enter into uh, this engagement with the living God to be obedient in all the Areas which God has commanded them, both in civil and in religious life. And thereupon, their obedience, looking for, anticipating his blessing in response. Now, one other matter 
I think is very important. This statement out of distinctives of uh, distinctive principles of the Reformed Presbyterian Church speaking of social covenanting it says this religious act is in one view of it a vow in another it is a covenant therefore in relation to it these terms are used as synonymous and so there are uh, times in which one will find vow and covenant used synonymously if there is a distinction between them we've already noted what distinction that would be but this is uh, what I wanted to emphasize it says the covenanter promises obedience to the divine law, accepting it as the rule of his actions. He promises obedience to the law. Very key now. Not that he may be accepted of God because of his obedience. We do not enter into a covenant with God in order to find favor or to be acceptable before God. But as a reasonable expression of the duty which he owes to God for the manifestation of whose glory he ought to do all things, he knows that the righteousness of Christ is the only ground of a sinner's acceptance with Jehovah. In other words, we enter into a covenant with God because God has entered into a covenant with us through the covenant of grace. Though our social covenanting is not the covenant of grace, our covenanting follows from the fact that God has entered into a covenant with us through Jesus Christ because he has our response to God out of love, out of gratitude should be that we therefore desire to covenant with him. And so this becomes again the grounds for our social covenanting. Not in order to find merit, not to uh, be able to work our way into heaven in any sense. It is simply a duty like all other duties, like all other commandments that we find in his word, which is an expression of our love and thankfulness to the living God. Now, in the fourth term of communion, and we did look at that or read it just earlier, <clears throat> we should note that, again, these are all preliminary remarks, that a covenanting is an ordinance of God. We're going to look at that. It is an ordinance of God. In other words, it is ordained of God. It is a duty that God gives to man, who uh, man who has entered into covenant with him through Christ and the covenant of grace. So it is an ordinance of God. We'll be considering the rest of, of this uh, term of communion in uh, some of it this evening and other, uh, other parts in weeks to come, but it's obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament. We're, we do not believe that covenanting 
was simply an Old Testament ordinance that passed away, like the ceremonial law, but that it does continue to, uh, to bind God's people in the New Covenant as well. This, this term of communion says that, that an exemplification, an example of social covenanting par excellence of this particular divine institution uh, is found in the National Covenant and in the Solemn League and Covenant. And so these uh, become examples uh, that we look to in order to understand more clearly what is social covenanting. And it says that these, uh, these deeds are of continued uh, obligation upon the moral person. Upon the moral person means that those aspects of those covenants that are moral in nature, not circumstantial, not simply pertaining to the uh, point of history at that, at that time uh, with uh, specific details as to the names of kings or the type of a, a government or those types of things, but to the moral aspects of the covenants, those things that are agreeable to the word of God being moral in nature, all of those moral aspects bind us uh, today. Uh, this is what this term of communion indicates. It binds us as individuals. It binds us uh, as a church. It binds us in Canada uh, as a nation as well because uh, Canada uh, was under, even at that particular time, under British rule. Uh, it binds the United States as well uh, and uh, other uh, Commonwealth nations in, in particular. But the moral aspects of this particular, uh, of these covenants, the moral aspects uh, bind all people and all nations and all churches because they're simply agreeable to the Word of God. But particularly they bind us because we are the descendants, the posterity of those particular nations. Those were our fathers. And the last thing that this uh, term of communion uh, indicates is that, um, that we are obliged as well to renew uh, covenants with God. <coughs> and um, uh, we'll talk more about that, but uh, a faithful renovation that we are told to consider and to, uh, to own as a faithful renovation or renewal of the covenants is the Arkansas renovation, uh, which was, um, which was uh, made in 1712 in Scotland. And uh, so uh, we can, I think, continue. Let me just say one more thing uh, that just came to my mind before we... Uh, move on. That uh, covenants, again, like this term of communion, like the rest of the terms of communion, uh, are binding upon us because, uh, not because they're imposed by man, not because uh, they are, were imposed by a general assembly. Uh, the reason that we believe these are binding upon our moral 
uh, nature upon us uh, as moral individuals is because uh, the matter of these covenants uh, are agreeable. The matter is agreeable uh, to the Word of God. Uh, it is consistent with the Word of God. It flows from the teaching of Scripture. And so, uh, again, we would simply say uh, that what the Scripture means is as binding as what the Scripture uh, actually says within the 66 books of the canon. Those 66 books bind us to the duties therein. But also, uh, we are bound by, uh, by uh, covenants, by creeds, if they give to us the accurate meaning of what the Scripture says. There's no difference in that regard. If they reflect accurately what the Bible says, then that as well binds us. And so we say that these covenants are binding because, again, they are agreeable to God's Word. God's Word still is our primary standard. We've not uh, subordinated the Word of God to these covenants. Um, so we need to make that clear. <clears throat> And so the rest of the study, I want to just uh, enumerate two points and uh, then we'll uh, look at those two points. We're going to consider the duty of social covenanting and then secondly, the perpetual obligation of social covenanting. And I'll be referring to a document which perhaps uh, some of you have seen and uh, which our session drafted. And so if it sounds familiar, it probably is <laughs> to some of you. The duty of social covenanting. We can look at the duty from uh, three different perspectives. The duty of social covenanting from the light of nature, from the light of scripture, and from the light of history. From the light of nature, the duty of social covenanting, we see, for example, in Jonah uh, chapter 1, verse 5, that there even the pagan mariners, sailors, uh, who had previously, it says, when the storm came upon them, had previously cried every man unto his God. And so these were not uh, faithful Jehovah worshippers. These were pagans. And when the storm came and when upon crying out to their gods, nothing happened, nothing changed, the storm continued to worsen, what did they do? They recognized their solemn duty to make vows unto the living God after he had rescued them from the raging sea. And uh, uh, that particular storm uh, that God sent, you'll remember the account that Jonah said uh, he was the cause. They threw him overboard. And it says in, in Jonah 1.16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Made vows. They made a, a uh, entered into a covenant with God at that particular point. In response, this is actually after God had delivered them. And so as a result of 
of the uh, deliverance of God. Now, uh, we know that uh, many times, this is another thing that comes to mind from the light of nature, many times people who are in tragedies or catastrophes or in dire circumstances, uh, you have heard of foxhole conversions, you will all of a sudden, very natural response. This is the light of nature. This is uh, showing to us that the way in which man is constituted himself, the way God has constituted man, man inherently knows to cry out to God, God, save me. And then they begin to bargain with God and make promises with, to, to God that, God, if you will save me, I will do this and I'll do that and, and on and on. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the actual... Uh, covenant or vow itself is not wrong but if there's no sincerity while doing it as in many of these cases that's sinful but in the case of these uh, mariners these pagan mariners apparently it was afterwards it wasn't that they made this vow in order to be delivered but they made this vow and covenanted with God after he saved them and delivered them as an act of response. And uh, one, I think, would assume from that that they actually uh, honored and acknowledged the living God and uh, uh, were converted as a result of this storm and uh, what God, how God brought such a miraculous deliverance. And so from the light of nature, we see examples uh, that impress man to cry out to God and to, to enter into a covenant with God. <coughs> From the light of Scripture, <coughs> we'll be looking at uh, various passages in the Word of God. First of all, um, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 10 through 12, we find these words. <clears throat> Moses speaking to Israel before they enter into the promised land. Ye stand this day, all of you, before the Lord, your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, with all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and thy stranger that is in thy camp, from the hewer of thy wood unto the drawer of thy water, that thou shouldest enter into covenant with uh, the Lord thy God, and into his oath, which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day." And so they entered into a covenant with the Lord their God. This was not, again, the covenant of grace. This was a covenant in response to the covenant of grace. This is a covenant which they entered into with God. And it says that thou shouldest enter. An obligation, a duty. Because God has delivered you, he has saved you, he has brought you out of Egypt, and now you're about to inherit the promises which God has made unto you. Now, it is your duty to enter into a covenant with God. <coughs> In uh, uh, Joshua chapter 24, 
and we'll just consider that uh, how many biblical characters entered into a covenant with God. Joshua enters into a covenant in Joshua 24:25, a renewal of the covenant. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. Joshua 24:25. We find as we look at 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 17, <coughs> that in response to the deliverance of God's people from the wicked queen Athaliah, that the high priest Jehoiada, it says in 2 Kings 11:17, and Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people between the king also and the people. We find in uh, 2 Kings 23.3, Josiah, the king, enters into a covenant with the Lord. It says there, And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people stood to the covenant. As you'll see in many of these passages, the natural response of God's blessings and mercy is to covenant with God. There are other times when God's people are in the midst of backsliding and a powerful incentive to, to remain faithful to the living God is to enter into covenant with God. And so those seem to be the two extremes backsliding and then God's mercies and blessings poured out in response. And so uh, we see covenanting going on in those particular times uh, when uh, there has been unfaithfulness to renew the covenant that was made. And when God is blessed to uh, make covenant with God. We continue looking uh, at some of the uh, characters, the biblical characters who made covenant with God. And again, no doubt they didn't do this because they thought it was just a great idea. They did so because they believed there was an obligation upon them to do so in response to God's mercies. In Second Chronicles 15, verses 12 and 15, King Asa, it says concerning King Asa, and they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath. You notice again how oath and covenant, oath and uh, covenant and vow are used in the same context. And so they are used synonymously at times as well. Uh, and all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with all their or with their whole desire 
and he was found of them, and the Lord gave them rest round about. And so we see certain characteristics of covenanting in that uh, verse. Uh, they swore with their whole heart. You know, covenanting is not a half-hearted duty that you enter into. It's a whole-hearted duty. And uh, uh, as a result of that, it says that he was found of them. God was found of Judah. And the Lord gave them rest from all their enemies all about. There was the blessing that was poured out in response to faithful covenanting. <clears throat> King Hezekiah in Second Chronicles 29:10 and in chapter 30, verse 8, says, Now it is in mine heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. Backsliding, making and renewing covenant with God. He continues, Now be ye not stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto the Lord, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. <clears throat> to yield oneself to the Lord, and we find that in Romans chapter uh, uh, Six, I believe, yield yourselves unto the Lord. That is covenantal language, to yield yourself. <clears throat> and then we find in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, and chapter 10, verse 29, covenant made with God's people after they had re returned from captivity under Nehemiah. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. And our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. In other words, all the, the leaders of the nation signed the covenant. They clave to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his judgments and his statutes. <coughs> Again, notice that uh, what they covenanted to perform was simply the, the scripture. They covenanted to be faithful to the commandments that God gave to Moses. And today, that's all we do. In covenants, we covenant to be faithful to the law which God gave to his people in the scriptures. <clears throat> in uh, Psalm 76, 11, one, uh, one more Old Testament passage, <clears throat> a command, vow and pray unto the Lord your God. <coughs> and so, an obligation there through the commandment, vow and pray unto the Lord thy God. Now, in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 1, verse 28 and 31, we find these words as to the obligation of covenant keeping and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge 
God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And one of the things that they, God gave them over to do, which he considers abominable, is covenant-breaking. And so one of the, one of the things that God... Uh, one of the ways he pours out his judgment upon a nation is in the area of covenant breaking. He can bring in, he can allow idolatry to come into a nation. He can allow um, uh, homosexuality or sodomy. He can allow um, abortion. All of these we should see as God's judgment upon this nation. Uh, these are not just. Uh, uh, natural forces at work. This is a supernatural, uh, supernatural acts of God's judgment that He's bringing. Because as we fall further and further into these types of of grave sins against the living God, there is further judgment that that comes upon a nation. Covenant breaking is At the very end of that uh, chapter 1 of Romans, it says those who do these things are worthy of death. And we find as well in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 3, begins this way, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. In what way will they be perilous? Well, he lists quite a few things, but one of the things he mentions is, for men shall be truce breakers. If this is a sin, then what we should understand is that it is a duty. If it's a sin to break covenant with God, it must be therefore a duty to make covenant with God. If it's a sin to break truce with God... It is an obligation to make truce with God. And then from the light of history, <clears throat> those are the scriptural references, but from the light of history, uh, we can glean these truths concerning the duty of social covenanting. In various uh, Reformed nations and churches, uh, as they came out of Rome, Rome uh, out of the uh, 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 papacy, they, in order to bind themselves together as churches, as nations, against uh, the uh, Roman Antichrist, against uh, the uh, the uh, the beast, and in all of its. Uh, uh, horror and uh, it was all encompassing uh, one has to realize that they in order to face the persecution and to face this this awful being this this antichrist they covenanted together in order to face uh, the Roman Catholic Church and it says um, uh, just a note here Social covenanting in both church and state has been practiced by the faithful throughout the history of the church, but especially in modern history by the Reformed churches in Bohemia, Germany, France, Switzerland, Holland, England, Ireland, Scotland, 
and even the colonies of America. And so social covenanting uh, is not a, uh, is not a uh, novel idea. Uh, it was practiced in history as well. Uh, many churches and nations saw this as an obligation upon them. <clears throat> but particularly we find um, the obligation stated in certain sections of, of our covenants in the National Covenant, let me simply quote this section from the National Covenant. Listen closely. We all and every one of us underwritten protest that after long and due examination of our own consciences in matters of true and false religion, we are now thoroughly resolved in the truth by the word and spirit of God. And therefore, we believe with our hearts, confess with our mouths, subscribe with our hands, and constantly affirm before God and the whole world that this only is the true Christian faith and religion pleasing God and bringing salvation to man which now is by the mercy of God revealed to the world by the preaching of the blessed evangel or gospel <coughs> and is received, believed, and defended by many and sundry notable kirks that is churches and realms but chiefly by the Kirk of Scotland, the king's majesty and three estates of this realm as God's eternal truth and only ground of our salvation, as more particularly is, is expressed in the confession of our faith, established and publicly confirmed by sundry acts of parliaments and now of a long time hath been openly professed by the king's majesty and whole body of this realm, both in bird and, and uh, land, to the which confession, notice this, to the which confession and form of religion we willingly agree in our conscience. When you talk about conscience, you're talking about something that's a duty. In our conscience, in all points, as unto God's undoubted truth and verity, grounded only upon his written word. So they were not instituting something that was <clears throat> contrary to the word of God. They found it to be a conscientious duty because it was agreeable to the written word of God. In the Solemn League and Covenant, <clears throat> we find these words. <clears throat> Uh, we noblemen, barons, knights, gentlemen, citizens, burgesses, ministers of the gospel and commons of all sorts in the kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland. And then goes on for a little bit. And then this section. We have now at last, after other means of supplication, remonstrance, protestation, and sufferings, for the preservation of ourselves and our religion from utter ruin and destruction, according to the commendable practice of these kingdoms in former times and the example of God's people in other nations, after mature deliberation, resolved and determined to enter into a mutual and solemn league and covenant, wherein we subscribe and each one of us for himself 
with our hands lifted up to the Most High God do swear. And so again, they state very clearly that this is not a novel practice. It is one that is commended by the practice of kingdoms in former times and the example of God's people in other nations. And so this has been done uh, throughout history. And just a few quotes from uh, from some of the covenanters themselves. Samuel Rutherford in Do Right of Presbyteries, page 132, says this concerning uh, covenanting. Whatever we are obliged to believe and profess as the saving truth of God, that we may lawfully swear to profess, believe, and practice that the bond of faith may be sure. But we are obliged to believe and profess the national confession of a sound church. Ergo, therefore, the proposition is clear from David's and the saints' practice who laid bands, that is, covenants, on their souls to tie themselves to that which is lawful, as Psalm 119 106 says, I have sworn and will perform it that I will keep thy righteous judgments. The major is the doctrine of our divines and clear when they explain the matter of a lawful oath that things lawful may lawfully be sworn to God observing other due circumstances. The assumption is undeniable. (coughs) Rutherford says that whatever we are bound to believe and profess as the truth of God, we are bound uh, to swear as well in a, in a solemn covenant. Uh, we find this from George Gillespie in his Miscellany Questions. <clears throat> um, volume 2 of his works, pages 85 and 86, it says, At the Treaty of Uxbridge, the propositions for religion of which the confirming of the covenant is the first and chiefest, the very chiefest of the propositions for religion in settling this treaty was to to swear the covenants, the confirming of the covenants. These covenants, he goes on to say, were acknowledged to be of such excellency and absolute necessity as they were appointed to be treated of in the first place and that no peace nor agreement should be till they were first agreed unto. And then finally, uh, one quote from John Brown of Wamfrey a um, disciple or a student of, um, of Samuel Rutherford. He says in an apologetic relation, page 173, it is a moral duty to abjure all the points of popery, which was done in the National Covenant. And it is a moral duty to endeavor our own reformation and the reformation of the church, which was sworn to in both covenants. 
It is a moral duty to endeavor the reformation of England and Ireland in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government, which was sworn to in the League and Covenant. It is a moral duty to purge out all unlawful officers out of God's house and to endeavor the extirpation of heresy and schism and whatsoever is contrary to sound doctrine which was sworn to there also. It is a moral duty to do what God had commanded towards superiors, inferiors, and equals, which by the League and Covenant all were bound unto. And so, John Brown, uh, again, a, a father from history, does indicate that it is a moral duty to uh, to obey all of God's commandments in these regards. All right, now, this will be much shorter. The perpetual obligation is the second main point. Perpetual obligation of social covenanting. Again, we'll begin from the light of nature, then the light of scripture, and then the light of history. From the light of nature... We just recognize that all lawful uh, civil covenants, treaties, duties, all uh, national covenants of, of various natures that uh, have been entered into by federal representatives in former generations, people believe these particular laws that were made, these covenants, these treaties that were made long before they were born, continue to bind them. We see that and people recognize that by light of nature. That just because uh, a new generation uh, is born doesn't mean that what was decided in the previous generation and is a part of the law of the land or, or is a part of a covenant or treaty that was made uh, is uh, uh, ended and terminated. Or because an administration in government changes that that automatically means that they begin from scratch. All the laws that were made before have ended. See, we recognize that principle uh, in, in, uh, uh, by light of nature, even within uh, heathen and pagan nations. That's recognized. From the light of Scripture, the perpetual obligation from the light of Scripture, <clears throat> well, we certainly see as uh, in the Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15.22, it says, For as in Adam all die. Uh, there is a perpetual obligation uh, and uh, uh, perpetual duty that has fallen upon all men uh, of a nature, uh, not uh, uh, maybe an obligation in the sense of obedience to God uh, in that sense. This is a, a different kind of uh, situation. It, this has to do with the fact that in Adam all sinned. Uh, all of Adam's posterity through this particular covenant that God made with Adam all sinned and therefore die in Adam. Uh, this is a covenantal representation, a relationship, and all are viewed as being under that particular covenant. Whether they uh, chose to be there or not, whether they wanted to be there or not is not the issue. They are Adam's posterity and were uh, uh, in Adam. 
and receive uh, that first transgression. They are imputed that first transgression of Adam's sin. <clears throat> Likewise, we find in 1 Corinthians 15:22, in Christ shall all be made alive. Again, this doctrine of federal and covenantal representation for all of God's elect. Uh, we find this expanded in our confessional standards where it says, uh, larger catechism, question 31, the covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam and in him with all the elect as his seed. And so again, all of God's elect were in Christ and all of God's elect received the, the benefits, the merit, the righteousness of Christ the blessings of Christ because of this covenantal relationship. It continues to, to uh, all of Christ's posterity. Certainly we see this uh, in the baptism of our children. Our children at a very uh, young age do not understand the obligations of the covenant and yet they receive a covenant sign, the sign of baptism. We find in Acts 2.39, For the promise is to you and to your children. <clears throat> Infant children are placed under co covenant obligation by their believing parents who act as federal representatives on their behalf at baptism. <clears throat> uh, larger Catechism question 166 says, But infants descending from parents either both or but one of them professing faith in Christ and obedience to him are in that respect because they're, they're in their parents, their parents represent them, are in that respect within the covenant and to be baptized. Covenantal representation. <clears throat> we find many examples of the um, perpetual obligation of, of covenanting in the scriptures just to highlight a few uh, interesting passage in Exodus 13:19, where it says and Moses took the bones of Joseph with him the bones of Joseph being in Egypt when Joseph died he made his brethren swear uh, many, many years uh, before Moses appeared on the scene, made his brethren swear that uh, they would take his bones from uh, Egypt when they left Egypt to go to the Promised Land. Approximately 400 years later, they, he made his, his brethren swear that. Now, was that covenant? Was that a binding covenant? Could... Uh, the brethren 400 years later say uh, we weren't there he didn't swear with us <clears throat> it says um, continuing that verse in Exodus 13:19, for he that is Joseph had straightly sworn the children of Israel saying God will surely visit you and ye shall carry up my bones away hence with you and they did so they took his bones out of Egypt. <clears throat> and then in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, 
covenant again God made or that the people made with the, uh, the, the Lord God it says the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb but this it says the Lord made not this covenant with our fathers but with us even us who are all of us here alive this day this is in actually referring not to the covenant uh, that they made just before entering into the promised land specifically, but referring to the covenant which God made with his people uh, on Mount Sinai. And it says there that uh, this is the next generation of, of people. Uh, this is, they're ready to enter into the promised land. Forty years being in the wilderness, that, that first generation had perished. But they say, God did not make a covenant with our fathers. He made it with us. Now, he's not saying that there's no sense in which he made it with the fathers. Obviously, he made it with the fathers. But the emphasis simply being, God made this covenant with us. We were there in our fathers. <clears throat> in Deuteronomy 29, verses 14 and 15. Again, this is uh, Moses speaking. Now, this is the covenant um, that they made just prior to uh, entering into the promised land. He says, Neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here with us this day. So the covenant's made with those who are present, but it's also made with those who are not present, our children, grandchildren, for generations to come are bound by this covenant because it's agreeable to Scripture, to the Word of God. One that is uh, used quite frequently is the one concerning Joshua and uh, uh, the covenant is made with the Gibeonites under false pretense. Uh, the Gibeonites uh, basically uh, defrauded the uh, 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 people of Israel pretended uh, to be not uh, neighbors but uh, from very far away because God had told them to destroy all of those who were within the vicinity, neighboring uh, nations there. <clears throat> and so uh, they obviously uh, had wind of this and uh, acted as though they had come from a long distance. And uh, it says in Joshua. 9.15 And Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live and the princes of the congregation swear unto them. And then uh, some 500 years later in 2 Samuel 21.1 1, uh, God's people are yet bound by that covenant made by Joshua and the rulers of Israel um, in that uh, we find there that Saul and uh, takes out wrath upon the Gibeonites and God punishes Israel and the, uh, after Saul dies he punishes Israel for what Saul had done to the Gibeonites because they had entered into a covenant uh, under Joshua is that binding upon posterity or not I would say just by way of qualification that normally, um, and I, I, I view this as a kind of an extraordinary circumstance, the covenant that uh, uh, this covenant Joshua entered into with the Gibeonites, um, normally covenants that are entered into where there is fraud involved, misrepresentation, these types of things, uh, I believe biblically are not binding. I believe this is binding because uh, they had a... Uh, 
recourse to the um, uh, to the uh, word of God by way of revelation. God spoke to them directly. They did not avail themselves. They did not inquire of God, and that's within the text. They did not inquire of God as to the matter. And God held them, therefore, to that particular matter. Now, we don't live in those extraordinary times where God reveals himself by, by means of, of, uh, of uh, uh, special revelation. We live in a time where we have the word of God and we cannot look into people's hearts and we don't have direct access to say, God, is that person defrauding me or not? In those kinds of circumstances, if we enter into a covenant with, an, uh, with a nation and they completely misrepresent, they intend to destroy us with that covenant, we're not bound to keep that covenant uh, uh, with, in that kind of a situation where there is fraud. Um, I think that that's an entirely different circumstance than what we find uh, with Joshua and the Gibeonites. I think that is the distinction that's, uh, uh, that is there. God held them to that because they did not avail themselves of the resource. They did not inquire. They did not search. It would be equivalent to us making a covenant uh, today. If we make an enter into a covenant and we do not inquire into the will of God, into anything like that, if we don't understand, if we don't seek to understand our obligations or anything, we just very flippantly, I believe that in those kinds of circumstances, we have failed ourselves. And I think God, in the same sense, will hold us responsible in that situation. But I believe that if we have sought out the will, will of God, and we have done everything we know, and if we are defrauded, think of the covenant of marriage. Someone uh, is, uh, 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 says, I've been pure, I've been uh, uh, chaste before, um, uh, before coming and in this interview, before uh, courtship and before marriage and, and etc., uh, but uh, lied concerning it, misrepresented themselves, had a very wicked past, and uh, as a result of that, uh, these facts uh, were determined. And even though a covenant has been entered into at the time of betrothal, that can be broken, and uh, that can uh, and a person can say, "You defrauded uh, me in this situation. I'm not bound uh, to uh, to own or to honor that particular covenant." And so I, I would see that as as the distinction and difference in, in this particular case. <clears throat> We find in Jeremiah 11:10 these words: "The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers." The covenant was made with their fathers, and yet God says to them, "You've broken it. You're responsible for breaking a covenant that I made with your fathers." So covenantal. Uh, the covenant binds perpetually in posterity. Uh, we find in Hosea chapter 12, verse 4, these words, Yea, he had power over the angel, speaking of Jacob, and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spake with us. God spake with us through Jacob. We are were represented federally in Jacob, 
in one New Testament passage, it says in Galatians 3.15, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannuleth or addeth thereto. Even in human covenants, let alone religious and divine covenants made with God, if a man makes a covenant, if it's confirmed, no man disannuleth. It continues to bind. It continues on. <clears throat> From the light of history, just uh, very quickly, the, the perpetual obligation of the covenant stated in the national covenant, it says, and, being, uh, and finally being convinced in our minds and confessing with our mouths that the present and succeeding generations in this land are bound to keep the aforesaid national oath and subscription inviolable. Succeeding generations in this land are bound to keep the covenant. And in the Solemn League and Covenant, says that we and our posterity after us may as brethren live in faith and love and the Lord may delight to dwell in the midst of us. We and our posterity and then again in the Solemn League and Covenant, it says, We shall each one of us, according to our place and interest, endeavor that they, that is England, Ireland, and Scotland, may remain conjoined in a firm peace and union to all posterity. To all posterity. One last quote from the Solemn League and Covenant. Most humbly beseeching the Lord to strengthen us by his Holy Spirit for this end and to bless our desires and proceedings with such success as may be deliverance and safety to his people and encouragement to other Christian churches. And so they saw this as being something that would be as well an encouragement to other Christian churches to do the same thing, to enter into uh, covenant with God. <clears throat> and then, uh, again, just... Uh, uh, just three very brief quotes from uh, Covenanters. Uh, the same three as I used earlier. Samuel Rutherford, Do Right of Presbyteries, page 134, says, <clears throat> To swear to the true religion, the, the defense and maintenance thereof, is a lawful oath as to swear to anything that is lawful and to lay a new band on our souls to perform holy duties where we fear a breach and find by experience there hath been a breach. Notice what he says now. It is also a duty of moral and perpetual equity. Therefore, such a sworn covenant is lawful. Moral and perpetual equity. Not just moral equity. Perpetual equity. Goes on and on to posterity. And then... Uh, George Gillespie in Miscellany Questions, Volume 2, page 83 of his works, says, The covenant doth in express words oblige us constantly all the days of our lives to pursue the ends therein expressed, so that to hold it but a temporary obligation is a breach of covenant. To hold it a temporary obligation and not a perpetual obligation is a breach of covenant. And then finally, John Brown of Wumfrey, in an apologetic relation, page 173, says this, 
And therefore the covenants are strongly obliging, being more absolute than other covenants, both by reason of the matter and by reason of the oath, and so are perpetual. That's all that I have for our lesson this evening. Are there any questions? Go ahead. Yeah, the question uh, why the so- National Covenant and Solemn League and Covenant are uh, pointed out in our term, terms of communion uh, in particular as in- exemplifications of, of uh, faithful covenanting. And um, uh, the response uh, that, uh, that you gave, I think, certainly is accurate that uh, they're, they're, they were national covenants. Um, they uh, were covenants between three nations, uh, the like of which... Um, to my knowledge, there has not been uh, in history. Um, and so these were covenants that reached such a high apex uh, in, in, uh, uh, in history that they are looked upon as being very faithful uh, covenants. And not only binding a community, uh, for example, in Geneva and various uh, uh, communities, uh, city-states, uh, you would find covenants, but not binding just a one city, state, or a county, not binding st- simply a province, not even a nation, but three nations together. And so this is kind of the height of, of covenanting. And so uh, also because uh, we as Presbyterians uh, do uh, look back upon this period of history as being so crucial uh, to understanding our distinctives uh, because of the, um, the, the fact that the reformers at that time hammered out uh, some of these distinctives uh, so clearly. Uh, they were always there. They were always biblical, but uh, uh, very uh, systematically made these things so clear. And so uh, for, I think, that reason as well, we look back upon these covenants as having um, a... Uh, uh, an obligation upon us uh, and uh, ought to be examples to us uh, beyond even other covenants. Uh, They're not any more obliging upon us than any other faithful covenant that is made in history. And any faithful covenant that's made in history, uh, the duties of that covenant we are bound by, uh, whether we know about it or not, just as we're bound by all the duties in the Word of God, whether we realize it or not. Uh, other questions? <clears throat> it seems that if you would deny uh, the obligation of covenants you know, in a roundabout way, you would be denying the covenant of works and the covenant of grace and other covenants also. 
special obligation because uh, we're gonna, would you agree with that? You mentioned some of that earlier. Yeah, if, if uh, one denies the um, social uh, covenanting as being an obligation upon God's people today, does that not uh, imply a denial of the covenant of works that uh, all were in Adam and the covenant of grace that all uh, God's elect are in Christ? And uh, uh, certainly I think that, that, that uh, the same principles are at stake. Uh, if one denies uh, federal representation in social covenanting, as long as it's agreeable to the Word of God, then I don't know upon which what principle one can maintain uh, our uh, being in Adam and being in Christ. It's that principle of federal representation. Yes. Seems to be a popular movement of covenanting in uh, the evangelical world called Promise Keepers. And uh, it seems to me that uh, <coughs> what you call a perverting of, of covenanting in, in a sense, because although there are some good things that are accomplished, men are not covenanting with elders, for example, and being accountable to <coughs> elders, are covenanting with peers uh, and trying to set up some kind of a, an accountability there. Do you have any comment on that? Okay, the question has to do with um, the contemporary uh, yet uh, perverted unbiblical um, type of covenanting going on called promise keepers. And I think that, uh, uh, again, what uh, you pointed out, Lyndon, is true, that, uh, that um, if they're simply making a covenant between individuals, uh, uh, I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with covenanting with, with between individuals. Uh, but if they're not taking it one step higher to make a covenant with God, I think that they have failed to fulfill that obligation that's there. Furthermore, the terms of the covenant, which, uh, which uh, um, in Promise Keepers, uh, there, uh, there is no... There is no uh, sense of obligation and duty to fulfill all the commands of God's word, to to separate from error, to separate from uh, sin, uh, those types of things. Rather, the terms of this covenant and the promise keepers has to do with with uh, coming together. Uh, and so you have uh, Protestants, Catholics, even Mormons uh, uh, coming together and uh, uh, as one. And uh, much of what we see there is, is characterized in other branches or expressions of uh, modern-day professing Christianity. Uh, let's get together, you know. Uh, uh, let's show ourselves to be one. The, these Jesus marches uh, where um, every, uh, every stripe, every uh, type of, of uh, a person who would call themselves a Christian is uh, under this umbrella. And... Uh, there is no distinction, again, made on the basis of biblical distinctions as to what constitutes uh, uh, orthodoxy, what constitutes uh, uh, biblical duties, that type of thing. Everyone is held accountable, basically, to another person. And it seems more the issue of, of uh, 
and some of the things again as you pointed out are, are, are commendable you know they want to show uh, their gratitude to their pastors and to their elders uh, they want to uh, be better husbands and better fathers certainly commendable uh, goals and aims but, uh, uh, but uh, anybody uh, quite frankly uh, Christian or not could have those as goals and aims and if they're not going to pursue them along biblical lines uh, then uh, it's, uh, it's an unbiblical covenant. Yes? Are there any other books other than the ones that you mentioned that would be very useful to read on this subject? Are there any other books that would be useful to read on the subject of covenanting? Uh, again, feel free to uh, offer your suggestions. Um, I, I think that... Uh, uh, the two that I mentioned are helpful. Uh, the book by, um, I don't know, the, I can't remember the first name. Is it William Cunningham? John Cunningham. There are two Cunninghams. I get them confused. Uh, this is not Principal Cunningham, but uh, uh, that's William Cunningham. This is John Cunningham. Uh, the Ordinance of Covenanting. Uh, very helpful uh, treatment. Uh, I think plain, uh, plain reasons for Presbyterians uh, dissenting uh, has a lot to say about covenanting uh, in that. Um, and um, uh, anything else that uh, probably uh, Rutherford's uh, covenant of life. Uh, okay, the Arkansas renovation and the act declaration and testimony. Any other questions? <clears throat> All right, thank you for your, your time and your attention. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, 
from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.